Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Rebecca Schwarzloz. She's a neuroscientist at the Washington University in St. Louis, where she studies cognitive and neural development in young children. She holds a PhD in neuroscience from MIT and has served as the chief editor of the scholarly journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences. Her recent book, Brainscapes, is the topic of our discussion today. Brainscapes was supported by a grant from the Public Understanding of Science, Technology, and Economics program of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. In Brainscapes, she presents the view that human brain is a collection of maps, detailed representations of the sights, sounds, and action that hold the key to our survival. They shape our experience of the world, support complex thought, and make technology-enabled mind reading a modern-day reality. That last point, in my opinion, is a double-edged sword. What is also fascinating is that brain maps are universal and at the same time unique. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rebecca. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Our pleasure. And uh, I must say at the outset that uh, one of the best introductory chapters to a book that I've ever read was in your book. I wish I could ever write like that. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, from the book's introduction, I understand that uh, our smell, taste, touch, sound, sight, movement, thinking, comprehension, actions, interactions are all mapped in the brain. So before we take a deep dive, please tell us how brain maps are remarkable and why are they important? Well, I think that they're so remarkable because they are an instantiation in our brain, an actual physical um, physical entities in our brain that are reflecting our world around us and not just the world around us, but the information that we um, rely upon from that world. So um, a, a brain map, um, just at the outset to, to get everyone on the same page, a brain map is actually a part of your brain, tissue in your brain made up of brain cells. Um, and it is it, it it responds to different it reacts and represents information in a way that reflects something in your environment. So, um, for the case of uh, we have a large visual map, it reflects and represents what we see, the light that's entering our eyes, and it's laid out across the the tissue at the back of our brain um, according to what we're seeing in visual space relative to where we point our eyes, mm -hmm. um, and it's distorted in a way that reflects the information that we need to pull out of our visual scene. Um, and so there are many maps like this for our different senses. And they're so remarkable because they really are like a physical instantiation of what we need from our environment. And then they allow us to, to extract the information that we need in order to do all of the important things that we do. Wonderful. Uh, since your research was on how the brain maps, uh, you know, comprehends objects and body parts. So let's begin with how our brain maps what we see. 
So you highlight that we gather a large amount of information about the nose and lips so that we can recognize a person's identity, uh, even emotional state. So similarly, you said that if you want to focus on catching a ball, uh, you say that uh, how and where we all detect very well or poorly need not be determined by the failings of our eyes, but rather by the unique layout of our brain maps. So that's, that's interesting. So tell us more, you know, how does this uh, work? Yes. So these maps are very important for allowing us to perceive and to recognize what's in our world. So in the case of vision, um, as I mentioned, we have this large map at the very back of our brain um, that is, is dedicated to representing the, the information coming in through our eyes about what we see. And it's centered on where we are pointing our eyes, where we are fixing our gaze. Um, wow. And this map is literally generating or, or producing our conscious experience of vision. So that if you, um, people, if they have like a, a stroke or if they have a bullet that pierces this map, um, they, they will become blind in a particular part of their um, visual field. And as they move their eyes around, that blindness will follow um, track with their eyes. And right. conversely, if I were to um, stimulate, um, it, neuroscientists have various ways of, of stimulating a part of the brain. Um, if I were to do that to part of your visual map, you would see a light in the part of your visual field that, that isn't actually there. So it's really what's happening in this brain map um, rather than what's coming into information coming into your eyes that is really determining what you see. Um, and so when we see information is first coming into some basic maps, including this really important large map at the back of the brain. But we also have other areas of the brain, other kind of visual maps that are supporting different parts of the process of converting light information into mm -hmm stuff information, information about the things in our world that we then, because really at the end of the day, we don't really care about light. We care about stuff. We, we see so that we can recognize what's around us and interact with it and, and know the difference between a predator and our spouse <laughs> or, um, you know, be able to, to know what's edible and, and, and what's dangerous. And so we have parts of the brain that help us to do that as well. And, um, they're kind of, I call them, they're kind of like neighborhood maps. They have these zones that um, as we grow, they, these zones kind of develop to help us identify certain key sorts of objects um, in our environment and use the information about those, those um, objects to then act upon them. Um, so wonderful kind of myriad maps um, that help take us from the, the, those different stages from light to stuff. Right. So when you say that, 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 you know, talk about the nose and the lips, you also talk about like uh, how uh, we make sense of it. Uh, we also have, if there's something is missing, then we have a little bit of a challenge and so on. So that triggers a very, uh, what in my opinion should be a topical question. Uh, we probably have all over the world, so many infants from zero to two years of age, who have not seen many unmasked faces, except probably their family, right? So what is the impact of not seeing 
many faces, nose, lips, facial expressions on the development of those infants' brain maps. Are you studying them or somebody studying them? What's it going to be? I, I very much hope someone's studying that. I think that I believe probably people are. I am not, but I have, I have, been, I have been thinking about it a lot. Um, my, my past work has been, has focused on um, a particular area of the brain that represents um, faces and allows us to recognize faces. If damage happens to this zone in, in, um, in, the, in the brain that represents faces, we lose the ability to, like if you have a stroke and you knock that area out, people become unable to recognize themselves in the mirror, their children, their spouses. I mean, even the closest, dearest people to them, um, much less neighbors and acquaintances. They really just become lost in a sea of faces. And that's because faces, more so than probably any other object in our world, um, we have to become so very good at recognizing minute differences between yeah. so faces all have all the same parts you know your face and my face are actually almost exactly the same and the differences between them are so minor and the fact that we get we get so good at recognizing those differences that we can instantaneously tell the difference is this kind of remarkable feat that we learn how to do and young children don't know how to do that they are not nearly so good at recognizing faces as adults so much of kind of the parts of the brain that help us recognize objects develop quite early, but um, the parts of the brain that really help us identify faces seem to have a longer longer trajectory of sort of, of development. And um, so that even, even teenagers are continuing to um, sort of develop that part of their brain and also show better and better ability to recognize faces. Um, so, so that brings a, a great question, which is what happens if you don't see faces when you're a child. And, right. and, you know, we don't, we can't, so um, we cannot, uh, you know, ethically um, do experiments on uh, controlled experiments on children where we don't show them faces. There have been scientists who've done that with, with monkeys. They've raised monkeys without seeing faces. Um, and those monkeys fail to develop um, a brain, that brain area, because they also have a face brain area like ours. Um, so we know that you have to see some faces in order to have that brain area. Thankfully, I think all babies born during the pandemic see some faces. They see their parents' yeah. faces. So the question really becomes, you know, how much do the differences in how many faces you see and how much of the face you see and how often you see it? And that I don't think we have an answer for, but I think it's something that we should be really, you know, really thinking about and really kind of um, sort of pursuing research on so that we can better understand if it's affecting um, the development of face processing and if there are ways that we can mitigate it while still um, maintaining masking um, as needed to protect um, each other. Yeah, other times it might have been unethical, but now suddenly it's a, it's a natural opportunity to study this, right? Like the economists sometimes talk about it, that suddenly there was some, some change in a particular state or a city or something like that, and that provided a natural uh, comparative uh, research. So, so Let's hope so. <laughs> Unfortunate, but uh, you know, maybe it gave an opportunity. Hopefully, we'll get to know. So, from that, I wanted to uh, move on to another aspect of it, uh, and this is about hearing sound. We know that humans can detect frequencies ranging between twenty to twenty thousand hertz, but the range uh, also narrows as we grow older, right? So, I I remember something that happened many years ago. Uh, the old Nokia phones, they could make a high frequency sound, roughly 17 to 20 kilohertz, 
that adults above 30 years of age cannot hear. So school kids used to play pranks in the classroom with these high frequency sounds that their classmates can hear and will be disturbed, but the teacher cannot hear. <laughs> so, so, you know, the question I have based on this uh, is what happens in the brain as we grow? Why do we lose some of these abilities? And can this be explained in terms of changes in the, in the brain maps? That's a, that's a great question. So um, uh, absolutely, we have experienced normal hearing loss um, or throughout life. And so children are able to detect higher frequencies than adults. This actually reflects not, um, not changes in the brain maps, but changes okay. in the actual um, physical structures that we use to, to identify sound, um, the cochlea in our ears. Yeah. So um, the cochlea are filled with these tiny little hairs, hair cells, they're called, um, and they're very delicate. Yes. And, 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 as, and that's how we get sound information is, is their movement. And now those, those high, the ones that detect high frequency are very delicate. And, um, and so if we have very loud sounds, um, they will, uh, they will be damaged and they will no longer function. And so, um, uh, you know, normally just there's normal sort of decrement in hearing because of those changes to the cochlea and, the, and also, I think, believe changes to the auditory nerve with, with um, age. But then the more that you are exposed to extremely loud and loud prolonged sounds, you go to the loud concerts or you, you know, have your headphones on super loud, um, that, will, that will expedite this process of damaging those, those hair cells and and losing the capacity to, to hear high frequency. Um, and your story really illustrates too how we can um, we can be in the same environment, you know, you and I, and you know, also me and a different creature, for example, and we can we can be aware, we can have our ability to perceive is very different. So that even though the environment is the same, you know, you 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 as a classmate, as a young person and you're and you're a teacher, we're having a different experience in that classroom because of your perceptual capabilities. And some of that is 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 kind of governed by our our receptors like in the cochlea. And some of that is governed by the the brain maps and kind of what our maps are enable us to perceive. Yeah, no, actually, this uh, story uh, was triggered by your reference in the book about how uh, mice can, you know, mice and us, if you are in the same room, they can communicate at a higher frequency, you know, probably, you know, warning each other or even probably <laughs> even criticizing that like, hey, what are these humans troubling us here for or whatever, but, uh, you know, and but we won't be able to hear because it's a different frequency. So when I read that, I remember that like, hey, you know what? I know this example, which is between uh, teens and, uh, you know, adults. So, so I thought that like, you know, it doesn't even require another creature. It is, you know, we, humans of two ages, different ages, how it was. So, so you know, uh, so, yeah. I, so I thought I'll talk to you about that. And let's talk about taste now. And uh, Dr. Rebecca, I must make a full disclosure here. The first research and the researcher on taste that you've mentioned more than once in this chapter is my brother-in-law, Dr. Jairam Chandrasekhar. He's my wife's younger brother. So, so you know, you talk about human taste and uh, mapping of that mammalian taste. You talk about salt. Uh, you know, all of those researches that you cite were done by him, uh, he and his uh, team. So... 
So you mentioned that uh, there are 30 different varieties of bitter taste receptors in the mouth and tongue. And their job is only to reject those foods. <laughs> but of the entire sense of taste and many hundreds and thousands of taste receptors, you know, which are bundled into thousands of taste buds, you mentioned that only three types of taste receptors are known to drive our attraction to food, sweet, salty, and umami. I quote you here. So why are they important and how are they mapped in the brain? Yes, great question. And what a, what a fascinating link to your, to your family. I mean, now your brother-in-law could probably answer some of those questions better than I can. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, I'm, he can, I'm sure, because it's his area of research. But uh, he said that you're a great science communicator. So I must uh, mention that. So, so well, you can simplify it. Thank you. And I, I admire his work. And, and, and I think that he's done some, he's done amazing work in trying to answer those questions because this is a, there's, this is actually um, an area that has so much left to discover. It's, a, it's really, a, you know, he was, he was very wise to specialize in this area because it's an area where there's kind of, it's, he's, you can do pioneering work um, because we know a lot less about kind of taste than we do um, some of the other um, senses in terms of how it's processed, especially in the human brain. Um, it just has not been studied to the same degree um, as things like vision or hearing. Um, but of course, it's so very vital. And one thing that kind of that struck me as I was, um, and this was an area that I really learned about for the writing of the book that I really kind of delved into taste and, 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 and what um, really struck me was how it is, it's like eating for dummies. It's like our guide <laughs> You know, because because we don't understand molecules and we don't we don't know, you know, we have no way of knowing what is poisonous based on its molecular structure. So all of that stuff, that chemistry and bi you know, biology that goes into what is safe and what is not safe and what has nutrients we need and what has things that, you know, will kill us. Yes, we don't know. And yet we have to have some way of making sure we, we eat the right things. And right. so taste is this kind of brilliant um, you know, evolved ability that allows us to automatically make that judgment. And so, you know, unlike a lot of the things that kind of infants are born unable to do, they are very good at being at, at tasting and saying, blah, I don't want that. <laughs> or yeah, give me more of that. So it's, you know, so there's, there's a very innate um, function to kind of the fundamentals of taste and those building blocks of, of those basic tastes and the receptors associated with them. And the role that they play is to really help us from the earliest stages without anyone having to tell us, we know <laughs> this is something I want to eat. And this is something I absolutely don't. And that's just the difference between life and death. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it really is kind of profound thinking about it that way. And thank goodness we have the, this kind of hardwired ability to tell the difference. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that's so fascinating about taste is how our taste can change as we get older or as we have experienced people from different cultures who get accustomed to different foods, might have different flavor preferences. Um, certainly, you know, I, I drink coffee now and I could not do that as a child. Um, and, you know, so the, the flavors that we tolerate, that we grow to even enjoy things that might be bitter or sour that as a child we would reject, um, kind of also shows there's also a, a, a certain learning, there's a strong learning component in terms of, of, of our likes and our abilities, our taste pleasures. So there's both, with, with taste, there's sort of 
um, there's this innate, there's a strong innate aspect that it, that does seem to be, at least in mice, um, there's evidence that there is a, there's a, a map that distributes representations of taste based on these fundamental inputs about sweet and umami and bitter, et cetera, so that you, that there's a kind of a layout in the brain that is, that is representing these, these inputs. Um, but there also seem to be parts of the brain that, that actually don't make maps. So not all brain areas form maps in the way that I'm describing. Some of them um, operate with what is called a distributed code. And they effectively, they kind of the patterns of activity in this area tell mm -hmm. us different things. And these areas are very flexible for allowing us to learn so that, for example, we can have a new flavor that we've never had before from perhaps another culture and say, you know, and and learn what it is, taste it, and, and then recognize it later. And so be able to learn about new flavors and new tastes. Um, so we have both kind of the hardwired and the flexibility. Right. Yeah, and 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 uh, I'm also not surprised about the the, the range of bitter uh, taste things because in English everything is called bitter, but in 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 our mother tongue and all uh, there are different names for the whole spectrum of bitter tastes. We don't call them so. Uh, even at the childhood, we are like trained. If they, we say, ah, oh, this is bitter, no, 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 this is not bitter. That particular vegetable is the definition of bitter. This one is like you know, this is called by this name and this is called by the other name and so on and so forth so so even the you know uh, so now when you say that that there is a range of uh, you know uh, receptors for that so then you know you can see that like why certain languages are more evolved when they feed children with different uh, uh, levels of bitterness or other tastes and so on and but the three main ones are essentially because we need carbohydrates we need minerals and uh, right and uh, umami is for what amino acids what is it who are Yes, yeah. So, so it's effectively the amino acids, the fats, the, the things that come from, from animal tissue that we that we depend upon. So exactly. So we make sure that we're getting our sugars and our energy. We make sure that we're getting the building blocks for um, for our proteins by getting protein from animals. And um, and we also have actually we have like two salts, we have two salt receptors. So we're making sure that we're not getting, we make sure that we get the amount, requisite amount of salt because our body, including um, our ability, our brain processes depend upon having a certain level of salt in our body. So we also seek that out um, as well. Yeah, it was fascinating when you said that, like, um, uh, we can differentiate between sodium and lithium, despite them being the same group. And then, you know, we of, of uh, you know, periodic table in chemistry, then uh, you uh, we, we pick the sodium, but we will reject the lithium. So which is very interesting. Um, okay. So talking of, you know, from that from taste, let's move to, uh, uh, you know, actually, uh, baby in the womb, right? Uh, you mentioned that uh, baby in the womb gets uh, early clues about the world into which it is born. Um, it could, you mentioned that like, it could partially hear the mother's voice, uh, which could, you know, get it oriented towards the language that it will probably learn and speak and understand when it comes out. So that's something fascinating. Um, you know, uh, growing up in an Indian epic, there is a story of a wise man who is supposed to have learned sacred text even while he was in his mother's womb, because in the environment where he grew up, uh, it was a scholarly environment, they were chanted around where she lived. 
there are more details to the story. I won't go there. That's not the point. The point, what was interesting, and you know, when I sort of uh, connected what you were saying with that uh, story from the epic, while there is no evidence of that extreme, what you're saying is that the newborn arrives with some basic preparations at least and information about the outside world already etched into its brain while in the womb. So from there, how does it develop? So, um, you know, so the, the, uh, the experience, the fetal experience is different than the experience that you and I have. In fact, even the newborn's experience, once the baby, you know, emerges and is in our world of air (laughs) instead of fluid, has a very different experience that we do. They, their eyes don't see clearly. Um, there are differences in how their cochlea process um, inform or receive information very early in life. Um, so it's it's interesting because there are clues, but they may not be the clues that we would think. So um, so the uh, so the in, in the fetal environment, um, you know, a baby is receiving kind of only certain like low frequency sounds. So they so they're hearing features of the language being spoken from their mother, but it's not, it doesn't sound like language as you and I would know it. It's probably more like a melody and a a rhythm. So there's kind of melodic and rhythm information that they do receive. And that that there have been some tests saying that newborns kind of show some familiarity for that sort of rhythm um, and and the kind of tonality of their mother's voice um, when they're born. But at the same time, you know, Unfortunately for us, they don't, they don't know how to speak yet. <laughs> you know, they, they haven't really received all the, <clears throat> so a lot of that um, has yet to come, all of the kind of rich um, uh, frequency information that, that, we, that we receive um, uh, later after development. Um, there's actually also a lot of kind of preparation that happens in terms of molecular cues. So mm-hmm. the fetal environment, um, you know, the, the, the fetus is, is receiving the, the, the blood of the, the mother and receiving the kind of nutrients of the mother there, you know, they may kind of have some access to sort of information relevant to the tastes of the foods that the mother con- consumed. Um, we also know, um, and there's, there's a really kind of deep and, 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 and ever expanding literature on how the kind of stress that the the mother is experiencing and the mm-hmm. way that affects uh, um, both her kind of cortisol levels and sort of her um, her um, inflammatory signals in her body um, has a lot of effects on how the 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 fetal um, body and brain develop. Um, which you know, so so there's this kind of really remarkable interplay of information that the fetus receives, and and some of that can set sort of a course for different aspects of development. Um, uh, but at the same time, the fetus um, is is kind of wired in such a way that it, it tends to be um, the fetal brain tends to be sort of inward looking. And what I mean by that, as I described in the book, how um, the uh, the uh, retina creates mm-hmm. these these waves. Um, while the fetus is developing and before, you know, before birth, before actual normal light has entered the eyes in, in a normal fashion, the fetus, the, the retina is making waves and those waves are just naturally moving into the brain and mm-hmm. stimulating the maps and helping to shape those maps so that even before the child is born, um, this internal kind of process of sort of reverberating activity is shaping and sculpting the, the brain as it's going to become. So that that leads me to 
to uh, to the next question is that when you say that you know in infancy and then you know to a lesser degree in childhood uh, these are the active periods when it is sculpting and refining the brain maps happen after it has come out of the womb that we just talked about if that is the case then what should parents do in the first couple of years of an infant's life that's a great question um and i think you know when I when I stress the importance of early life experience, <clears throat> I can make it can it can make parents feel pressure like, you know, <laughs> I need to teach my two year old how to play piano or something yeah. like that. And, and that that is not the case. So what babies are building is the just the real fundamental groundwork kind of areas of the brain that are going to allow them to operate their body, receive information about their world and <clears throat> and, and begin to process it. So they don't they don't need to be you know doing baby Mozart or anything like that. But what you do what you do want to make sure they do is you want to make sure that they have a variety of experiences and social interactions. So basically, the only thing that's really you know what what would be bad for the the developing brain is um, you know a very stressful you know um, scary environment, obviously a dangerous environment. Um, or a, a um, an environment in which nothing happens, you know, which, for example, happened to children who experienced like institutional neglect. So there's a, a lot of research on children who were um, in Romanian orphanages um, in the 1980s, and, and they just kind of were left there. Um, and they didn't have any stimulation, and they didn't have social interaction, they didn't have touch. And so so, you know, the less sort of interaction and change and, and new things that you experience in childhood that you know that can affect the diversity of the maps that you that you develop. Um, so I would say I would say the biggest thing is is interaction. Just, nothing is as good as 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 like interacting. So you could you know if you put a baby in front of a they've done studies you put a baby in front of a, a TV that's trying to teach them a new language like a video. No, they're not going to learn it. They need that dynamic response interaction from a from a human being. So you know I think I think the biggest thing is to keep in mind when you look at that baby, even though you know, it's drooling and it looks kind of dumb. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, not dumb, but you know, it's not doing anything exciting yet. It's, it's, it's. But it's absorbing, it's absorbing constantly, right? It is absorbing. And so you interact with it and you react to the things it can do. And that is going to make all the difference. It's going to be really, really helpful for helping your child develop. So two things. One, I feel less guilty that like, I didn't put my children through piano classes. That's one. <laughs> Second is, you know, you, you know, you talk about uh, them absorbing at that age uh, from the things that they see and, uh, you know, the way the interaction with us, with the world uh, happens. So since, you know, cognitive and neural development in young children is your area of research, I wanted to ask you this. I remember one day when, uh, you know, we took our daughter out when she was an infant. Uh, so I was carrying her and she was sitting in a, in a, in a sitting position and, um, on the sidewalk, a double ducker, uh, you know, we were on the sidewalk and the double ducker bus passed by. And I observed that she was literally straining her neck to scan the bus from top to bottom, from left to right. And she was so intense. Her look was so intense that like as if she wanted to visually swallow that behemoth, right? So I'm just trying to understand now, you know, uh, when we are talking about this, would she have been making a brain map of that <laughs> monstrosity at that time? Yeah, I love that. I love that example or that question, because um, 
I talk in the book about how the kind of, there's a couple of ways in which um, our, our neighborhood maps of, of brain recognition areas. So the areas that we use to visually recognize objects um, are laid out. And, and sort of the fundamental things that, that, that determine their layout is whether they move, whether they're animate, um, and, and, and how big they are. Um, and so I think, you know, I, what you were seeing with a double-decker bus full of people is sort of um, something that sort of breaks all the rules. Exactly, um, <laughs> for her, right? Yes, <laughs> for the yes infant. it was it's very large. And then you and just very close also, right? We were not too far away from a sidewalk to the to the main road. It was not far away. Yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no. And then so, so she's seeing faces and she's seeing this giant thing and it's moving. And then there's moving inside of the big moving. And it, you know, it must have been <laughs> very overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I but I think it illustrates too, you know, we we pull different sorts of in, there are certain fundamental properties of our world and the information that we pull from them that are consistent. So for example, that generally things that are large and don't move um, are things that we use to sort of, you know, like a house or a, a, a sign or a street lamp or something, something that we can use to, we know it's going to stay there and we use to navigate around it. Um, it's something that kind of is a cue to where we are. Alternately, we have things um, like animate things like you and I that are moving and we're kind of like, what, it, what is this person going to do next? So we're looking for cues to understand how to interact with it. Um, or you could have, you know, if you have smaller inanimate objects, you, you really just have to think about where they are because you are going to move them and right. manipulate them. Right. So where is that? Yes. The toys, yes right. Right. <laughs> Where's my, st my stuffed animals so I can pick it up. Um, so different information useful information comes to us from different kinds of things. And so that, is, that double-decker behemoth is a great example of something that's breaking all the rules. You know, it's sort of doing everything. Um, and, I, and I can certainly see why it would be a bit of a, a brain buster. For yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, in, in brainscapes, uh, you say that like, you know, the, the very brainscapes that uh, we rely upon to perceive the world, right, also shapes and distorts the contents of our dreams, our memories, and fantasies. Explain to us this. Yes, absolutely. So when you imagine something, um, you know, you close your eyes and try to picture that infant daughter's face, um, you activate you generate activity in the parts of your brain that would process her face. I mentioned that neighborhood area for recognizing faces. And also in that large visual area at the back of the brain that, that will process visual information. And so you actually create in these, in maps, when you imagine something, and it could also be something auditory, it could be something um, tactile. When you imagine, you create activity in those brain maps that is similar to what you would create if you were actually experiencing it. It's like a weaker version of similar activation patterns. Um, and so, you know, when you think about it, what you can imagine, and this includes with, you know, from what we understand, we have, there have been people who've done, um, put people in, in MRI machines and scanned them while they were sleeping. Um, and there's also many studies um, kind of um, also with, with different animals, sort of seeing how when they sleep, what neural activity. So we know that the activity, um, you know, as we dream, we are creating 
we're kind of replaying information. Um, and that includes in these brain maps that we are using these brain maps to represent the contents of our dreams. Now, um, what that means is that the things that our brain maps don't represent are also not going to be taking place in our dreams. So mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, we don't dream about having a totally new body part that we use all the time. Um, you know, or if we're to, going to imagine that, we kind of have to imagine it by imagining taking another body part and turning it into that thing. We don't have dreams of what's happening in the back of our head. You know, mm. our dreams are yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. limited by um, our physical experiences and the brain maps that have been shaped. Because for example, we, we don't have a part of the brain map that represents the back of the head. So, um, so in that way, the, um, these maps that, that shape and allow us to perceive also constrain what we can dream about and what we can, and, and what and how we can imagine. So quick follow up on that. So uh, does it mean that false memories can also be created? Oh, ab yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, false memories you know, are, are very, very common. In fact, a, a true memory is what is rare, a, a memory that is identical to the experienced event. Um, and that's just because uh, when we when we recall a memory, when we bring it back, every time we bring it, bring it back to mind, we are we are changing it. And it is changed by the activity in our brain that's happened between the event and the recollection. Um, so so absolutely um, memories are far more malleable than than they may seem and and <laughs> um and and that has to do in somewhat with this dynamic process of of bringing bringing reinstantiating our memories wonderful so now let's move on to the the technologies of of the modern day right um let's discuss two parts one is i mean both of course are related to brain computer interface or bcis um you mentioned and uh, you know uh, about the science scientists having eavesdropped on a brain uh, which is reconstructing a specific human faces set of human faces fairly accurately that a subject is seeing at a given time just based on the brain activity that they are recording and uh, when i saw that uh, uh, photograph in the book the decoded images were like you know eerily similar right uh, and far better than many famous uh, police sketches. Uh, so, so tell us more about one this as well as some of the other things. And we will, and the next part, of course, separately, we will talk about what these tech companies are doing and your viewpoints about what they are they should be allowed to do. And we'll we'll talk about that separately. But uh, related to this, where is technology now? What are the things that they fascinating things that they've been able to do before we discuss the uh, companies? Yes. So, um, so first, I should say that that example that you gave is kind of the example of the absolute maximum that is possible, and and uh, with with kind of mind reading, I'll use the term. And mind reading, I, I that's sort of it, it's it's an accurate description of what it is, but it's also a very loaded term because True. you know we think of it in a scientific sense. It's like sort of like it's unlimited, and the truth is that it it is limited. Um, so this one example that so that comes from a study with monkeys and um, and so in this case they could they had all the time in the world they to be able to show this monkey so many faces and then meanwhile they had um, electrodes inside of its brain that were recording activity in the part of the brain that um, that parts of the brain that re represent face uh, face um, identity so they're getting like so 
the trick, a couple things to keep in mind. One is that the, the more directly you are listening in on activity in the brain, in the neurons within your brain, the better you are going to be able to kind of to mind read or or read out information about what a person is seeing or hearing or thinking, et cetera. Um, thinking in, as in like imagining. Um, so, so, um, and thankfully we don't, most of us go around having electrodes in our brains. So, so that right there keeps, um, you know, kind of rules out the sort of what you saw those out, those pictures from the monkeys, um, with the monkey, the, the readout. So, because that was what happened when you had, um, electrodes in the brain and you showed, you know, thousands of pictures of faces and recorded, and then you use, um, what is, um, machine learning algorithms to kind of learn the patterns of that neural activity so that it can eventually um, say, you know, recreate the face. So that's the best it can do. But what we can do with humans, um, there are people who do have electrodes implanted in their brains for various reasons. And there's technology being developed to um, try to um, help people, for example, who are paralyzed, um, or people who have very severe, severe depression or OCD or, or Parkinson's disease. So you can use these electrodes to um, help, you know, to stimulate and sort of change brain states. You can also use these electrodes to try to read out um, from a from paralyzed individual what they're trying to do, what their brain is telling, saying to do. And, and even though their body can't follow those instructions anymore, the, um, the electrodes from the brain can be decoded and then you can have a robotic arm or something move for them. So that technology is, is already underway. It's, it's being developed. Um, there are examples, prototypes that have, um, have been successful in, in doing that. So it's pretty amazing and has a lot of power to help people. Um, and then a lot of the technologies that, you know, we would be more likely to get rolled out to a, a kind of a general audience or a, you and you and I might, you know, pick up from, from the store and try out would be something that you, you know, non-invasive that you would not have to <laughs> pierce the skull. Um, and there are, there are, um, so as you get further out of the brain outside, especially with outside of the skull, you lose a lot of the resolution. Um, so what you're then looking at is kind of an average pool of activity across a, an area of the brain, um, which can still tell us a lot, especially the more data we collect from that brain. Um, and, um, but it can't tell us anything so exact as which face you're looking at. It can tell us, for example, with an FRI machine, fMRI machine, we could say you're imagining a face right now versus you're imagining a house right now. We could tell you that from looking at your brain scan, but we couldn't say which face or which house, for example. So, so, you know, given that uh, the last couple of points that you mentioned and you, you are concerned about, uh, you know, the big tech companies racing ahead and getting hold of our neural data from EEG like devices and then combining with so much data that they have like, you know, about uh, individuals, right? Like about us uh, based on our online behavior and, and, you know, on social media and so on and so forth. And they are already using powerful algorithms and we have enough evidences of like what they have done and how they have influenced groups of people and so on and so forth. So, so you have a, you know, uh, talked about, you know, the concern about like, you know, what can happen if on top of all that thing that they already have, if they can get hold of, uh, you know, neural data from EEG devices and so on. So talk to us about your concerns and also 
your proposals, how to safeguard our privacy? Yes. So, um, so I think that the, the main things that we need to think about in terms of sort of what are the dangers or what, what is the potential for this technology? One, as I talked about, is, is, is the, um, the clarity with which you get a signal from the brain. And, and so as you get out to something that can be read with like a, something like a EEGs, like electrodes on the surface of your head, like you could put them in a hat or in a headband or something, um, yeah. your clarity is, is really quite low. But um, the other factor that needs to be considered is the amount of information you have, because um, with, with modern machine learning algorithms, that is like kind of computer programs that are able to extract and learn about patterns um, uh, from mound, mount, mountains of data, and therefore then take those patterns and read them out in future experiences, those, um, you know, if you can feed in um, a machine learning algorithm you know, hours and hours of data from your brain. And on top of it, you have data from other people's brain and you know what they're doing while you're recording it. That's the kind of one of the key things is that these, these algorithms to work, they have to be trained. So they have to kind of, at least they have to have examples to learn from and then they can extrapolate. So, um, so the more data there is either from you um, that showing like, uh, you know, I'm being recorded while I am browsing Facebook or writing my Google emails or things like that, um, or um, from many, many other people, like if, if I know what other people are doing, or if I know their kind of medical, medical situation, and I can extrapolate, like, here are the patterns, or the machine learning algorithms can say, here are the patterns in, in you know, hundreds of thousands of people's brains, you know, that correlates to their behavior that relates to you know experiencing depression, for example. Then if I then you put on a headset, then can I read out from you after having you know been reading out what you're doing? I know what you're doing, and I've got the headset and I've got the data. Then the ability to read out information about your kind of medical history, much less sort of certain aspects of your kind of mood or or potentially certain aspects of what you're doing, um, that, that, that becomes something that, that would be within reach of machine learning algorithms. Um, and so I think one of the things to just be aware of is that so much of the money that's being invested, so there's kind of, there are, there are medical, there's medical technologies that are investing money in these BCIs, and, and that's to help people, for example, with para, who are paralyzed, um, and that can be very powerful and, and is a good thing. Um, but there's also uh, some of the major investors in this space are are the all of the major corporations that are, are um, in big tech. Um, they are investing a lot of money into developing devices at various levels. Um, some even uh, like uh, work by one of uh, Elon Musk has a company that's actually developing electrodes for mm -hmm. inside the brain, um, not just for medical use, but also with an eye toward rolling it out and bringing us closer to AI, um, kind of, he, he described it as a symbiosis, you know, that we could have with AI. So, um, you know, all the big names though are, are in this, this field and we have to kind of stop and, and I think ask now um, what, what limits we wanna place on, on, this, on these data? Because technically, you know, we, we, you can have, you can enact public policies, you can enact laws that say, some information needs to be handled in certain ways. And some, you know, we already have laws like that. For example, we make sure that people are not selling organs on the black market and that people, that medical information is protected. And likewise, um, you know, 
what do we do with data about our brains? Um, we should make sure that we have um, thought carefully, publicly, um, in a kind of a, uh, some sort of a open forum um, about what are the, 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 the limits that should not be crossed, um, what protections need to be in place for data that are collected from our brains. Um, and we should think about kind of, you know, especially if it's, if it's owned by companies like, um, if, if it's being developed by companies like, like Facebook or, or Google that are in the sort of business of collecting information about us and then using that to sell things to us, what are the implications of having them in possession of our neural data? So um, yeah, we need to be having the discussions now because the technology is advancing. Pretty fun. That's a you know uh, fascinating thing to know, and like I said in the beginning, that it's a, it's a you know as you highlight, it's a double-edged sword. It is good for people, you know, and it could help the, and change the lives of some of the people who have uh, uh, medical conditions. Um, but at the same time, as you said, that like if it for you know if it is developed and it is controlled and there is no um, regulation, no clear policy guidelines as to what cannot be done and what can be done by uh, other technology companies, uh, and will people be influenced into buying or doing things based on these kinds of things? I think it's a, it's a very uh, you know important area where there, as you say, rightly say, there must be conversation. And, and in fact, probably beyond conversation, there must be certain amount of clear guidelines and policies. And we hope that like uh, people involved in it uh, articulate this, like, like you and others articulate this and you can get the uh, powers that be to get to act on it because usually from in, in last couple of decades what they have what we have seen is that they're usually way behind in comprehending technology right so thank you so much it's it's a you know uh, fascinating uh, point to discuss and then i think it, this will be a topic which we could probably take up and uh, discuss further in, in in another time but it was absolutely a, a very enjoyable discussion for me and uh, you know while you, we we learned so much about the positives of it and we are ending the note with a warning that like hey don't forget that uh, this uh, technology can have uh, other uses and we need to be careful about it thank you thank you very much dr shwaklos thank you thank you Thank you for joining us in yet another episode of Move Conversations. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day.